my passport for being here is not like most people that are doing it. Um, and, and there we are. And I, and I don't know what, what happens next, but, um, I would love to be able to write some more things like this. I was hoping after having written it, I could expand it into a book and absolutely I'm clear. Nobody's going to pay me to do that. So, <laughs> so yeah. Well, he did it again, man. He did it again. It's Bryn Jonathan Butler. He's back on the show. Number five, six, I don't know. doesn't matter. His piece, Giving Up the Ghost for Hazlitt, is one of the greatest things I've ever read. I put it in last month's newsletter, and I'll be sure to link it up to the show notes in this episode. BrendanOvera.com. <laughs> I've read it twice. Part of the fun of reading pieces like this is being along for the ride with a brilliant mind, a brilliant writer. And then when the piece is done, you're like, I need a cigarette. And I don't even smoke cigarettes. And somehow Bryn ties in Anthony Bourdain's suicide, Italo Calvino, fuck, am I, am I pronouncing that right? I think so. Francis Bacon, Jose Tomas, and the spine of the entire thing is a relatively obscure film by Michelangelo Antonioni titled The Passenger, starring Jack Nicholson. And yes, Bryn somehow got 30 minutes on the phone with Jack Nicholson and got that and folded that into this. It, I can't describe it, so you should read it. It's 23,000 words. It's part travelogue, part meditation on suicide, part memoir, part criticism. It's all Bryn, man. It is all Bryn. Support for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Wesleyan College's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing. Now in its 10th year, this affordable program boasts a low student-to-faculty ratio and a strong sense of community. Recent CNF faculty include Random Billings Noble, Jeremy Jones, and CNF Pod alum Sarah Einstein. There is also fiction and poetry tracks. Recent faculty include Ashley Bryant Phillips and Jacinta Townsend, as well as Diane Gilliam and Savannah Sybil. No matter your discipline, if you're looking to up your craft or learn a new one, consider West Virginia Wesleyan right in the heart of Appalachia. Visit mfa.wvwc.edu for more information and dates of enrollment. And promotional support for the podcast is also brought to you by Hippocamp 2021. Hey, this is your last chance. It's next week. It's back in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Registration's still open. I imagine there are a few spots left. Maybe not. Maybe you're out of luck. Hardwire to self-destruct. It's a conference for creative nonfiction writers. Marion Winnick will be this year's keynote. We've got a debut CNF author panel featuring Lily Dansger, Greg Mania, Carol Smith, and Janine Willette. August 13th through the 15th. Dig it. Use that promo code CNFPOD21 to get 50 bucks off your registration fee. Yeah, Bryn, man. Uh, he's the author of Domino Diaries, The Grand Master. He's been a Best American Sports Writing notable pick, and I think he's made the volume of Best American Travel Writing. It doesn't matter. It's just like he's he's got a big uh, he's got a big burning fastball. It's clocking mid nineties, man. And you know your buddy Brendan here is just like lobbing slow pitch softball. It's it's not a jealousy thing. It's just it's a fact. It is facts.
I don't make it up. I don't I don't know how he does it. He's he's just a he's a special dude, man. I'm glad to call him a friend and I'm uh, I I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say I'm his biggest fan. Big limb, but I'm going to go out there on that edge. Show notes are at brendanomero.com and uh, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com/cnfpod. I'm very behind in transcripts. Sorry. It's I've uh, been got a lot on my shoulders at the moment, workload-wise, and I no excuse. I'm just dragging my feet on them, but I'm working on them. Shop around. Pick a tier that's right for you. Your dollars help keep the lights on at CNF Pod HQ and pay for writers in the audio magazine. You know, check out Summer. And there's a new submission guidelines for the next one at brendanamera.com. You'll forgive me. I didn't have time to edit this podcast like I normally do, but don't fret. There's gold in every second. There's gold in them bar heels. So riff. Being in the podcast sphere, uh, how has that maybe you know affected the your writing or your writing habits or even the the tenor of your writing itself? Um, I I think it has in the sense of just gaining access to people for an hour is a little bit easier than I would have thought because with writing you'd you'd have to have an editor greenlight an article, and if it's a podcast, especially if you have a few big names on it up front, when you make your pitch to these people to come on for an hour, it can really help put, put, no, I don't know, put pressure on is the right word, but people can say, Oh, wow. Like you've had Errol Morris or, or Wesley Lowry or, um, you know, Gates, Elise or whoever. So they say, yes. So it, it's been interesting when you're able to get somebody for an hour. I mean, with COVID and it's all remote, I much prefer doing it in person um, just learning more about the process of people who've been at the industry of journalism for 20, 30, 40, 50 years sometimes has been instructive about trying to navigate it myself where the calculus is so much different now in terms of it being really hard to make a living from it. Um, where the audience is right now is is a bit of a challenge for me to get to in terms of my own interests coinciding with, you know, like, do we really need the New Yorker allocating Gia Tolentino and Ronan Farrell on the Britney Spears conservatorship? Uh, I don't know, but I mean, is that the most vital story <laughs> to have their aces covering? Well, it is in the sense of, I guess that's where the discourse is for a lot of people, you know, combining, uh, kind of a tabloidy celebrity and and uh, you know a multi-million dollar slave story in a way seemed to be the way it was presented but it, it's not really what I'm particularly interested in so with podcasting I guess I've just sought out all the people that I've been most interested to talk to who are currently alive and uh, you know it's been it's been really interesting just gaining a bit of a backstage pass into uh, what their plan was and then the sort of unexpected uh, 
derailments that happen or left turns and that sort of thing. And just trying to plot out as I enter my forties, you know, you, I don't know if you feel this, but like my energy is different at 40 than it was at 30 and certainly different at 20 and looking ahead at 50, um, as Glenn Stout told me when he turned 60, he said, I'm equidistant to 80 as I am to 40. And I'm the same way, except it's 60 and 20 when I turn 40. And I don't know, it just, it's an interesting thing to revisit and just try to get an assessment of what you want out of your career after a little bit of time in the game and, and some luck and then some some mis, misfires and that sort of thing and the politics of it. Yeah, you bring up it's and my I have a short list of things that I wanted to bring up with you, and you've already brought up essentially two of them, which was I wanted to get your sense of what your relationship is to journalism these days, and also how your ambitions might be different or how they they have changed in the last in in the last few years, last ten years as you enter a new decade. You and I are both forty one, so we're both cresting into that new decade. And so it's just it's great hearing you talk about what you've already talked about, which is actually two big boxes I wanted to check off in talking with you today. So I don't know, maybe you can speak to that a little more. Well, when COVID began, um, I applied for every grant that I could or fellowship. And I thought finally for the first time in my life, unlike beginning writing, um, I have a pretty good resume now to apply for those kind of things as opposed to an absolutely worthless resume to apply. I, I have no formal education and I had no formal credits trying trying to break in. I, I mean, I kind of had to sneak in and, and lie to get credentials in the boxing world where fortunately for me, there was no barrier to entry. You know? Yeah. It's like me you and know? horse racing. It's like, you want to write about it? Go for it, man. No one else is doing it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so applying to all of these places, it was quite humbling because I was able to attract some of the people that I've interviewed in the past who are very prominent writers, often, prominent award-winning writers to speak on my behalf with testimonials and that kind of thing. And it, it didn't do a, a thing. So it was sort of like, okay, you know, you're not going to get 50, 70 grand to go out and write a book. You have to figure out another way to make a living. And where my interests now are, um, don't really have a lot of intersectionality with, um, I think, the zeitgeist. I, I think I'm more interested in uh, plunging down a lot of rabbit holes um, of characters, mainly from the past, but I mean, a few a few that, that are contemporaneous. But um, so I, I've tried to find my way in and use it, utilizing the podcast a little bit. I mean, I, doing some reviews for things, uh, Bloomberg Magazine reached out to me to ask if I would review stuff, and I didn't ask what stuff they wanted me to review. I just started saying yes because I, I figured that I could try to make it work. So, I mean, I even though I don't drink alcohol, I have reviewed several whiskeys for them. Hmm. Uh, I just don't mention that I haven't actually tried it. I just bring other people to try it, um, often pretty serious alcoholics to give you their assessment <laughs> of, of the alcohol um, or exercise equipment, or now I'm branching off a little bit to review films. Um, 
interviewing Ken Burns about his Ernest Hemingway documentary and then PBS asking me to join panels with him. And uh, now he has a Muhammad Ali documentary coming out in September. Oh, wow. Um, that's like, so uh, I, that's a big overlap for you right there. <laughs> Ken, Ken Burns movies, boxing. Yeah, that, just, that checks a lot of boxes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've, I love, I've always loved film a great deal. Uh, I, I, I've never seen any of these contemporaneous um, comic universe films. Um, I know I've never read a page or, or seen a frame of film of anything to do with Harry Potter, which I think has sold 300 million copies or 400 million copies and, and made billions and billions of dollars at the box office. So the kind of um, films that I'm interested in often are documentaries or sort of niche indie stuff. Um, I do like some mainstream stuff as well, but I, I'm just doing my best to try to find stuff that people are curious about that coincides with, with my sort of curiosity. So Anthony Bourdain was one with this new documentary, this new documentary about him that Morgan Neville did. And uh, I was trying actually to push the piece that you read about the passenger and, Jack, and interviewing Jack Nicholson Um what I had intended to do was completely derailed by uh, trying to go to the, the last location where the passenger was shot by Michelangelo Antonioni and then get just hearing on the radio of Bourdain's death. And it was interesting because I, I was quite repelled by him as a person, at least in, in the fleeting glimpses I had of his show. Uh, a friend once took me in 2016 to watch him do a talk at BAM in Brooklyn. And I just didn't like his bravado. I didn't like his demeanor. It seemed really phony to me. And um, his suicide just really sent me into his life. And I just kept finding things that were pretty um, fascinating and also pretty alarming. And as I usually do, just, just sort of trying to create a nexus with what I'd been working on and and then stumbled onto this realization that um, maybe some of the buttons he was pushing for me um, coincided with a lot of my own um, origins, you know, unlikely origins to get into this industry, including um, by accident in a way, um, deceitfully having a friend send in a story I'd written, really a letter I'd written to an ex-girlfriend um, that he passed off as uh, this was written by my best friend who, who killed himself after he wrote it. And that was not a contrivance to try to exploit suicide to, to break in uh, on my part, but it, it was uh, a very bizarre way to, to see your words in print when you've been trying for 10 years and I think I'd written a million words at that point without being able to sell even one. So a lot of the, the desperation and, and a lot of uh, suicidal ideation in my teens and my 20s was, was very legitimate, but, um, but it was this kind of, uh, I don't know, just a, a weird place to land to, to break in as I, I ended the piece. You know, a lot of what writing is, is trying to have people listen to you, to, to be heard. Um, like Laurence Olivier said to Dustin Hoffman when they were doing 
marathon man, um, you know, what's my motivation as an actor? Hoff, Hoffman asked Olivier, and he just said, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Hmm. And I think with writers very often, it's listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. It's why we're so offended with like a J.D. Salinger not wanting to publish. You know, what are you trying to say that we, that we want to publish, that we want to be heard? Uh, you're saying there's something wrong with it? And even Bourdain touched on that by saying a lot of sharing is not really sharing. As Fran Lebowitz said, it's leaking. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, I've always been very caught by some real discomfort about writing about personal things. And then also a lot of the work that means the most to me from artists and writers is, is the most personal, which somehow simultaneously coincides with being the most universal about, about like the human condition that they touch upon. You know, you, you listen to Hamlet, Hamlet's consciousness is fighting on art on humanity's behalf. It's even though it's all from his point of view, solipsistic um, it's hard not to just connect that. I think this is the first time a character's ever been written that's smarter than its creator. And, and Shakespeare is pretty intelligent. Yeah, yeah. This. Uh, I, so I, I had a chance to watch the the Passenger over the last couple of days, and it's such a it's a, such a peculiar film. And I, but it was arresting. It's like you almost couldn't take. I almost couldn't take my eyes away from it, even though it was so sort of quiet, contemplative, and really, like, weird. And uh, and so maybe you can just uh, you know, just talk a little bit about why this movie really glommed onto your consciousness when you, you know, first saw it, and I, I think it was 2005, if I remember right. Well, I, I think, as I just mentioned, my way into print was a bit of the catalyst to this story, which is somebody very similarly to Anthony Bourdain, is an incredibly powerful journalist in the world. He has the world's attention for the stories that he's covering, but not just the stories he's covering, the way he tells it has captivated the world. And for some reason, at about 37 years old, it's unclear, it's unstated. He has run out of... Uh, he, he he's fallen over a cliff. There's some kind of existential crisis in his being where he's burned out and at the end of his rope and chance seems to offer this opportunity when somebody he's just had a fleeting conversation with the previous day in the desert of Northern Africa. And it's a strange conversation. It's quite poetic and elliptical and the next day he goes out to try to find the war that he's been commissioned to find, can't find it, um, and ends up having to walk home um, desperately thirsty, hungry. And for some reason, this just pushes him off this edge to say, what am I, what am I trying to do anymore with this business, uh, with this identity I have professionally that blends into the personal identity? I am a witness to things, but I'm not participating in my life, hence the passenger. I'm a passenger in my own life. And I've heard many journalists uh, over the last 10 years put it one way or another that they feel like flies on the wall of their own life or the recently deceased Janet Malcolm saying that essentially we're incredibly parasitic. If we're honest about what we do, we, we are 
doing something immoral with the subjects that we find, even though we may be doing something that assists them or assists understanding of them. There's there's something about this that doesn't sit well with with a lot of journalists. There's a, a kind of ambulance chaser component to it that a yeah. lot of people contend with. And so when Nicholson gets back to his hotel room, a kind of anonymous hotel room in an anonymous area of, of Northern Africa that he doesn't know, um, he notices that the person he had the conversation with the previous day has died and remembers that he, there was a mention that he had a bad heart. And in the spur of the moment, in a very quiet, unobserved uh, few moments, he decides to exchange identities with this dead person. The problem is, is he doesn't know who this person is. So he has to reverse engineer and deconstruct who the person is um, just with a few little artifacts, uh, uh, a day book with some names that mean nothing to him and locations all over Europe. And it becomes this exploration of identity, which Nicholson goes on this kind of quest, even though he's going into the quest blind. And I, I think I just love the idea of this. And I love how so many of the most important moments in our lives um, happen when we're not seen and we're not performing. And Nicholson performs this film and especially this scene very quietly. Um, there's none of the little ticks and antics because Antonioni told him like, don't do that shit. Hmm. I want you, I want you to be real here. And so I became totally fascinated by the performance. Nicholson meant a lot to me when I was a little kid because my dad and I used to watch a lot of um, classic movies and my dad in university was a theater and a, a film critic uh, before he went into law school and himself was a documentarian for the CBC when he was only 18, 19 years old and was a playwright. And then he was, uh, he wrote a play in, in his, in university and, and the professor told him, you're the most talented student I've seen in 30 years. And I just can't wait to see where you go with the rest of your career, because I think you're going to be a very important voice in, in Canadian literature. And my dad was really never able to finish anything after that. It changed his relationship to writing and art from something that was just a natural um, facet of who he was to kind of a responsibility. And he felt like he was a fraud and he just couldn't really go forward. So I, I I think my earliest memory was listening to him on a typewriter smashing away and always being afraid to ask him, like, did it go okay? Like, are you getting close to finishing what you want to finish? And, and yet he never did. It was just another beginning and another beginning. And so when he introduced me to The Shining about a school teacher who's burned out with that profession and would much rather identify with being a writer, even though... There's no, there's nothing suggesting that he's actually a good writer in the first place. Beyond that's how he wants to be seen. My father was capable of occupying the role of being a, a, a very good writer, I think, maybe even an important writer. Um, it just really colored my childhood in really profound ways. Writer's block and 
my dad's identity and this kind of person he he and I think I thought he was meant to be, but instead moved to a very different role, which I think led to uh, an increasing reliance on alcohol and, you know, a lot of self-destructive habits. But um, seeing, seeing Nicholson go from who I first met in The Shining, where he and Danny in the film were the same ages as my dad and me, um, and then, I don't know, just the unexpectedness of finding the, the passenger the way I did because Nicholson had hoarded it. Nicholson literally owns the film like a private work of art, and he has one of the, the largest, most lucrative private art collections in the United States. Um, and you know, not many people get to see it because he's just lived on Mulholland Drive for whatever it's been since Easy Rider. So the film, in a way, became part of that collection because he he got it in some kind of deal with MGM and he never really pushed to to have the film released and yet i heard at some point around 2004 2005 that it was actually his his most treasured film and he described it as the greatest adventure of his career so i i found that so bizarre and then when i encountered the film i i just never really seen any kind of film like it and i my dad had warned me a bit about Antonioni that he hated him when he first encountered him until his film professor sort of explained, no, these things that you're hating are actually the things that Antonioni inserts to replicate real life. Like all, all of the, the barriers to what you're looking at, the subject is shrouded in all kinds of things. Antonioni's comment is that no matter what we're looking at, it's we, we suffer the same problem. We're never really able to look at anything clearly. And, and the way that he manages time, um, as you were saying, like the pace of it is very, very unusual. And a lot of the stuff with like, for, for me, when I fell in love with various artists, you know, watching Andy Warhol or le learning of Andy Warhol filming the Empire State Building for eight hours, I thought, what an asshole at first. And then you learn that this was a bedridden kid who very often was quite organically looking at things that he cared about for six or seven or eight hours as, as just a very natural extension of his perception of art and, and his attention span. So it wasn't him trying to be a, a jerk. It's just for him, it was natural. And so... Uh, there was something like that with Antonioni that I, I went into it thinking, what a pretentious bore. And then when I actually encountered it, I, I just never really seen or experienced anything like it. And I just had so many questions. And it reminded me a lot of, of my favorite writer, Italo Calvino, where you read Invisible Cities. And for some people, it's one of the most profound experiences they've had in connection with literature. And then there are other people like uh, Paul Theroux, who just says, oh, a lot of people... Uh, wax poetic about this, but it's really a lot of convoluted bullshit. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know that he's wrong, but it's it's not true for me, and it's not true for a lot of other people. It seems like you uh, you have the heart of a novelist, whatever that means. And I, I wonder if if that's something if you could if you could make a go of it strictly writing the kind of novels of a of a Cal uh, of a Italo Calvino and and. and writers of that nature if that's something that would really lock you know lock you in or or if the journalism you do and the essays you do is is all the more uh, interesting and uh, uh, arresting for you 
Well, I tried it for a long time and, and was a complete failure. And I think I was trying it with where my influences were when I started, where, um, you know, there were a number of great novelists who began as journalists. And so I, you know, Hemingway was one of the first people I read, but I mean, so many of those novels are, the characters are based on real people and the events are often transposed you know, a little bit, but he, he was not, he was not an originator of, he's not creating worlds and creating universes. He's really drawing from a lot of real life. And, and I was trying to do the same, but I think I just hadn't had the experiences that were really worthy of, of it, you know, or were interesting enough to do that. Um, and I would love to do like, you know, the early stuff of Orwell was really influential for me. Um, not, not the fiction, but I mean like homage to Catalonia and down, down and out in London and, and Paris and a lot of his essays. But I, I would love to make the jump like the, the way he did with animal farm and um, you know, the, the dystopias that he created and, you know, Kafka did the same thing. I, I have had a few, I think good high concept premises to develop um, into something uh, of narrative fiction, but I, I think I'm a little daunted about starting. So I just mm. I find I just outline and outline and outline, but I, I don't crash into it. Whereas with journalism or the books that I've been hired to write, um, and I'm in the odd position that all three of the books that I've published were publishers coming to me to write them. Every book that I've ever proposed to a publisher has been summarily shot down almost instantly. What do you think it is about your 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 writing and your style and your voice and what you bring to the page that has that publishers are are courting courting you to write the, you know, write the books that you have written, you know, given that it's so often the other way around. Yeah, it's it's strange because I mean, with my first two books, I had a very good experience with the publisher with what I handed in, where they just went, you know, very relatively lightly edited. It's not to say there wasn't some course correction and, you know, this is this is going on too long or, you know, we need to streamline this or that. But I mean, fundamentally, the, the initial conversations I had with them about what I intended to do and what they wanted um, – everybody was happy after it was handed in and I was very happy editing with them. And then with, with my last book about the chess world, I just didn't, I really didn't understand how what I was hired to do was possible in the sense that if, if there is an event, I was, I was hired to, to cover the 2016 world chess championships and it was going to be published two years later during the next chess championships I don't know, even if you have a really good championship that happened to say, you already know what happened here. So there's no tension for, for the unacquainted. <laughs> um, I'm going to still make it compelling for you. Well, what if it's a particularly loathed championship and you're saying, hey, guess what? Let's revisit this thing that you really had no interest in in the first place. And anytime you, your curiosity dug into learning about it, in case there was something interesting, um, you were told there's nothing to be concerned with here. And, and so what I tried to do, because it just wasn't a very compelling championship and the characters 
completely denied me any kind of access for interviewing was was the gay Talese thing and run around who the characters were. And I tried to do an overview to create a bit of a, a buffet for non-chess people and saying at the outset, I am a non-chess person. I'm an outsider to this world. I'm a tourist to this world and fellow tourists. I have been listening to the questions that you're most interested in this. So what about we look at um, prodigies? Let's explore the dynamic of prodigies through the lens of chess. Let's explore why this is a segregated game by gender, because that has mystified a lot of people that I talked to that didn't know much about chess. Um, let's look at Bobby Fischer as a character who, as a chess player, was for a period of time the most famous person on earth. Let's talk about a game that's existed for 1,500 years that was invented in the same century as toilet paper. Um, why nobody's been able to make money from it, even though 600 million people play it. And my editor didn't like any of this. He, he said, no, I hired you to do a kind of play-by-play -play of the World Chess Championships. This is not Malcolm Gladwell. This is not some sort of, you know, let, looking at artificial intelligence that um, began with um, Alan Turing playing chess, um, playing himself as the AI. And in 1997, when Deep Blue defeated the World Chess Champion, that was the biggest event in internet history in 1997. My editor really wasn't enthused with any of this. And so I, I kind of got to a point where, just tell me what you want. Like, I, I'll, I'll completely abandon what I want to do with this. I don't know what the Grandmaster as a title even means. It sounds like a Kung Fu movie. And... <laughs> I had hired an illustrator. I had my own title, Heavy Lies the Crown is what I wanted to call it. Uh, I had a kind of Macbeth crown that looked like a bear trap um, that I just thought like, oh, this would be so interesting, an exploration of mental illness within chess and all of that. The editor just totally did, disagreed with me. And so it was one of the most, I mean, it was the most lucrative thing I've ever been involved with as far as it's Simon & Schuster. And you, you know, get reviewed everywhere, you know, get reviewed in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I was profiled in the New York Times uh, right before or, or during the World Chess Championships at the end of 2016. But it was very eye-opening to me about what this industry is, where I was interviewed by the Times as I was reporting on this World Chess Championships um, in relation to teaching boxing in the park and, and getting a book deal with Simon and Schuster and somehow still being on Medicaid, still qualifying for Medicaid. And Fidel Castro had died. I got a completely glowing profile. Um, Cuba was, or Havana was the most Google searched location in the world for <laughs> tourist destinations. And it moved 1200 copies of my book, um, the Domino Diaries. So I just thought, boy, when you think of that confluence of events, Castro dying, um, how, how, it, Cuba opening up because Obama was opening it up to tourism, and a glowing review in the biggest paper in the world, I mean, I think a circulation of one or 1.2 or 1.4 million, it was the cover of the Metro section in the Times on Sunday, and then maybe read 10 million times online or something, and it moved 1,200 books. So it, it definitely was an eye-opener just to think um, 
there's no bigger place to be profiled and it didn't really move the needle at all. So I wonder, is it about me? Is it about my relationship to the subject matter, what I'm drawing from it? Um, but it's, it just was an eye opener to me that you're never going to have to, you're never going to be able to stop hustling in this. I'm, I'm not one of those people where, you know, John Mayer opens up with some stupid song about you taste like bubble gum or whatever. And, <laughs> and he's off running into a multi-million dollar career. Um, that's just not going to be me. But I mean, I, I've also been very fortunate to have a career to, I'm, I'm not in debt after 10 years by some miracle, even though I, I came to New York leaving behind $50,000 worth of debt, trying to make a documentary about Cuban boxers that nobody in the United States has any interest in paying to watch. So I, I don't know why my journey is so quixotic. Um, and I don't know, maybe from somebody's point of view, it's, it's a cautionary tale. And, and yet um, I feel very fortunate that the main thing that I was driven by was access to people that I wanted to talk to. And I got to talk to so many of them and have good conversations, but it's not been particularly lucrative, Brendan. So mm. uh, I don't know why it's gone the way it's gone, but I mean, I, I would still keep it if I had a choice to do it over again. But I, I don't know that if my son, if, if I have a son or, or a daughter and they said, I want to pursue this this same career. I, I kind of think you're crazy because I got very very lucky, even to have the career that I did. Yeah, and there's always something that strikes me as as fearless about your writing and the way you go about it and the globe trotting you do to chase down, uh, chase down and follow your taste. And I, I wonder what your relationship is to fear and how you manage to dance with it to put out put out the work that. That, that I that I know I love reading and I'm sure countless thousands do too. Well, I think fear was a was a big thing for me. I I I have a lot of fear in my life, a lot of anxiety. Um, you know, if, if there's two people sitting across from me at a restaurant, I feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but if it's just one person, I don't really care who it is. I, I'm pretty convinced that I could have a good conversation with President Obama if, if you gave me an hour with him and it was just us alone or or kind of anybody. I, I, I've always had the sense in a weird way that meeting anybody in my life is sort of the world feels a bit like a big Grand Central Station and you encounter people who are there sitting around waiting for a train and you don't know what train they have. And it's possible they might have the same ticket as you in terms of the train that you're going to ride on. But um, I always have this sense that like we're passing through each other's lives in some way. And there's a bit of, you know, I, I was listening to Orson Welles the other day say in an interview, I hate every, every single kind of goodbye because all goodbyes are death. And I thought, Ooh, I, I've always been very uncomfortable even saying goodbye to people, any form of goodbye. I'm very, very uncomfortable with. And I hadn't thought that of course it's true. Goodbye is a prelude. It is an entree to, to the ultimate goodbye. And, I, and I'm uncomfortable with it, but I love the beginnings with people. So I just, I just tend to hope that, um, uh, because I'm not a 
planner by nature. I, I tend to learn to swim by diving into various bodies of water that you get away from what your habits are that way. You know what I mean? Like in the sense of if, if I show up, like when I showed up to Havana the first time when I was 20, I, I, my guide was an alcoholic on the plane who was buying antique books in Havana and then illegally bringing them back to, to Canada and selling them on eBay. And he plugged me into a neighborhood and a community that there's no way in hell I would have ever found. And so I've always sort of consciously made an effort to plan as little as I can, maybe have a destination, but the path to get there, I want that to happen as organically as possible and to allow chance and accidents to happen. And you just meet so many unexpected people uh, along the way and kind of, I, I think it creates a, a, a sort of framework that's a bit like, you know, like in wartime, they say relationships become really heightened and sped up. And I, I think there's some element of that. If I only have two weeks or a month somewhere, I have to make some some core relationships in order to um, overcome the obstacles that are in front of me to to get the stories that are necessary to to, to bring something back to readers. And I, I like that impetus and I like the fear that it provides because it it means you're not just going to, when you see the girl that you're in love with across the street, you're not just going to look at her and observe her. You're going to, you have to cross the street and talk to her and see if you can make something happen. And I'm very, very nervous and very shy and, and rejection really hurts me. I have very thin skin about it, but I've been rejected so many times in my life that I've learned a very useful lesson, which is the recovery from rejection does improve with, with how many times you're rejected. It's just how much it hurts you to be rejected always stays the same. That's kind of set. And, you know, the, the first time I was dumped, it took about a year and a half to get over it. But the second time it took about two weeks. Hmm. And then the next time it was much less. That's a, a good lesson because if you haven't experienced it, you're going to have an illusion an illusory illusory relationship to that it's always going to take a year and a half to recover from rejection and maybe you're not going to risk it again so the one good thing that i've discovered but through being afraid which is the fear of being massively in debt meant i have to knock on a bunch of fucking doors that i have no business knocking on that literally it's illegal to knock on these doors in the country that I'm doing it, but I have to do it because what is the alternative? The, the alternative is sort of total self-destruction. There's, there's no path forward. And, and so I think that I've tried to use the, that curse as a bit of an asset because my thought was always other journalists or writers who are coming here who maybe have better credentials or have money or have options are never going to take the chances that I will. And so that's, that's a roundabout way of saying, I don't think it's anything to do with courage. It's just, I think I more acutely feel fear <laughs> than most people. <laughs> you, know, you had uh, mentioned that Nicholson uh, alluded or, or said the passenger was his greatest adventure. And I wonder if writing this, this amazing 
piece that you did for Hazlitt, which I've read twice and I've just been completely engrossed by it both times I read it. Uh, I wonder if it is one of your greatest adventures or if it isn't, maybe what, you know, what is, what has been your greatest adventure to date? Well, I think I, when I embarked on the chess book beginning at the end of 2016, Trump was elected. It felt like New York City was in a collective nervous breakdown. I literally was seeing people crying all over the subway, everywhere. And this is, it seems like another lifetime ago with COVID happening in between um, and, and Biden being elected. But um, I haven't had more than three hours sleep since I took on that assignment. Hmm. It just, the stress of it, um, I had a, a cat die on me, which if you're not an animal lover, I guess that, you know, well, what's the big deal there? But if you are, I think you understand it oh, deeply, very much <laughs> deeply. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It devastated me. And, and, you know, right now I have the, the brother of that cat sitting, sitting next to me on his little cat tree condo sort of thing. <laughs> um, so I've noticed that my memory has really suffered from not being able to sleep properly. Um, I don't know how to fix it. I, I just not, not had more than three hours sleep in the last five years. And that book was very frustrating. It's very, very frustrating to have a, a work put out into the world and to get pretty harsh criticism from some corners, you know, like New York Times or uh, Wall Street Journal. And what they're criticizing are things that you yourself criticize to your editor to say, don't put this in here. Don't make me say this. Don't, I don't want, my name is attached to this. Yours isn't kind of thing. But then it's good because you just go, you know, fuck it. Like, I mean, I had some people say you, you were reviewed in the New York Times in six months. All that matters is you were reviewed in the New York Times. It doesn't matter what they said. Um, so, I, I kind of like the detachment of that, but at the time it was very frustrating to be like, I am creating a track record as somebody who writes critically acclaimed stuff that doesn't sell. And, you know, almost all of my books have been nominated for very prestigious awards or shortlisted and that kind of thing. And yet they haven't made close to, to their advances, even though I'm not getting big advances. So there was this part of me that I had a long distance relationship. And for my birthday, the, the lady said, I, I want to take you to Spain and, and let's, let's go on this quest where you want to go to see where Nicholson filmed this movie. Cause you're so obsessed with it. And, um, I, I've never written anything where I, I look back on it. I mean, it's such a weird monstrosity. I mean, what the hell is it, Brandon? It's like, 23,000 words that's travelogue, memoir, film crit annotated film criticism, uh, interview with Jack Nicholson, where now it's abundantly clear nobody under 40 years old knows who the fuck he is, let alone cares. Yeah. Um, that's what I love about it's it. A, it's just such a, as I'm, I'm reading certain things. I'm like, how did, where am I? How did I, how did I get here? I just, <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, and it became a very, labyrinthine kind of piece. I mean, in a way I was working on another piece ahead of it, like ex examining magic and the mechanisms of magic and like the, the so-called too perfect theory of magic that if it, it's sort of like CGI, when you look at CGI in movies, it doesn't amaze you because you know, it's not real. 
unlike if you watch Star Wars or Indiana Jones, it tricks you and you go, wow, like that's amazing. But if it's too perfect, it, it loses all its splendor. And I became obsessed with this idea that why is it with magic, the moment I tell you what the secret is, it completely obliterates your connection to the wonder that was created by the trick. And if I tell you behind the scenes the stories that led to the, the great works of art that you love, it heightens your connection to that work. Suddenly, you know, is Van Gogh Van Gogh without the suicide? Is, is you know, Wheatfield with Crows, if it's not his last painting and all the ambiguity associated with it, um, what's our connection to it? It's just inextricable that you cannot remove the suicide from the work. You cannot re remove the tremendous awareness we have of his mental illness with how lucid all of his letters are and how incredibly lucid the paintings are. His power is in total control in those paintings while he is the embodiment of, of mental instability and chaos and suffocation. He has no friends. He has no connection to anybody. And so I wanted to go deeply into that um, because I, I think a lot of what, what was the impetus for art for me and, and a lot of the people that I've admired is that we, we need to escape what is written in our own history. And, and so we take that history and we begin to rewrite it creatively. And art for me began with a trauma of a bullying incident where I just, it was not tenable to live within my identity. So you, you start, you know, I think Hemingway did this too. And, and tons of artists do. I mean, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald didn't even realize that Gatsby was based on himself and Zelda. I mean, until years later, you know, cause it's so obvious it's impenetrable for us, you know, like, Freud saying that drives are silent should give everybody pause that the, the more intimate and vital some of this information is to who we are and our identity, the harder it is for us to see it, even though it could just be like dirt on your face for any idiot can see it on your face. But if you don't have a mirror, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are to see it on yourself. And so I think a lot of the mixed feelings I had with doing the chess book where on the one hand, it gave, gave me three years of financial security that I've not had as an adult. Um, on the other, I, I, it felt like a very mercenary thing where I was incredibly frustrated working on it, and it really fucked with me. And I went through a big breakup and the death of the cat. So I was in a really unstable place that I just I needed to embark on something blind that I felt was entirely in my voice and was the thing that I would most want to read, even though I was fully aware to do a, a huge piece on a film that nobody knows with an actor now that is aged out of recognition in the culture for many years and trying to do a kind of Janet Malcolm thing of, of this assembly of all of these different themes into one thing. Um, I originally had it with the Atavist. They they took it, I think, mainly because of the Nicholson interview. And for the first time in my life, I took a kill fee when they said, look, we have a house style. And this doesn't really fit. We, we totally recognize there's some extraordinary stuff. But this is not our style. 
And I just thought about it and just was like, I need to see where this goes. I've never taken a kill fee in my life. And I just said, absolutely give me a kill fee. I was fully ready to accept that nobody would ever want to publish this thing. And then I presented it to the main editor at Hazlitt, Jordan Ginsburg, and it took forever for him to get back to me. <laughs> He's a very busy person. And when he finally did, you know, I, I don't know how much rejection you've encountered in this industry, but I've encountered a lot. And I just went, okay, here it comes. Yeah. But he just went, this is this, I don't know how this works, but it, it's just one of the most incredible things that I've read. And I, I couldn't believe that. I thought it was a joke. I honestly thought he was just, there was going to be a punchline at the end that was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like a 22,000 word piece on Jack Nicholson and the passenger. And, and you, the first time you got published, you lied about having killed yourself. Like this is in such bad taste or whatever. <laughs> um, but he was just um, after, you know, two years of legal issues with Jack Nicholson's lawyer to use images from the film in the piece um, all of which failed. Originally, that lawyer said, you can use whatever you want, and then ghosted us when we just wanted him to sign a paper to that effect. So we had to find alternatives. But I mean, it was it was sat on literally for over two years. And it was the most rewarding thing I've ever worked on. And it was absolutely the most frustrating thing I've ever worked on to get it fucking published at the same time. And it's been fascinating to see the people who read it, at least the ones who've said anything about it, um, all kind of landed on it. They, they thought it was the best thing that I've ever done. And it completely disappeared within like a day. It just did nothing. So, you know, it's humbling, but I mean, would you rather write the thing that you're most passionate about and it does nothing? Or would you rather do something that you have absolutely no investment in and it does tremendously well? I've had several pieces sort of do the quote unquote go viral, but I didn't particularly give a shit about them. Um, and it's, you know, it's okay, but you're just sort of like, okay, you got lucky and it tapped into where conversations were. But um, I guess, you know, really doing a deep dive into suicide and identity and an esoteric film with an old actor, you know, an octogeneration <laughs> actor um, are not where people are interested in going for 23,000 words or I wasn't capable of keeping their attention, but it, it was something that I was very necessary for me to, to, to offer maybe just myself, but also to have it published was a real treat for me. Yeah. Well, I, I think of it almost, and I'm sure this was part of your intent as well, is that it, it, it's, it strikes me very similar to The Passenger in a sense because it's that is a a movie that I – if you put that in front of 9 out of 10 people, they'd be like, well, what is this? There's no music. It's shot all in the daytime except for the very end. And it's just, just kind of this weird thing. You almost don't know what's going. You get unstuck in time. You don't Sometimes the point of view changes and you're like, I don't even know what to make of this thing. But it's one of the most – it is the proudest piece of work that Nicholson ever did. And I am, I imagine this piece as I, – I, like, I, like I said, I, I read this thing twice and I love it to death. And I imagine it's going to be one of those uh, big game trophies that you're going to have on your wall no matter who else likes it. But that doesn't matter because this, this is truly your, you know, your lion hanging above the mantle. Well, it, 
you know, I'm the opposite of a lion hanging on a mantle. I'm adopting a feral cat from Connecticut. Yeah, I'm, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm the adopt the feral cat that has feline AIDS and I need to protect Raul from contracting feline AIDS. <laughs> but I know what you mean. I'm just teasing. Yeah. But I, You're talking to you a know, vegan, I, so it's just like, yeah, the hunting and killing animals is, is nothing uh, – <laughs> is in bad taste no. for me. No, no, no. But I no, I know the point you're making. I'm just teasing. But – I, I just think, you know, there are there are lots of artists that I've loved that their stuff took took a while. You know, like there's a great line that Picasso had when he had Gertrude Stein sit down for something like 85 sittings and he just couldn't get her right. And then finally he, he took a crack at it when she wasn't there for a sitting and she came back and she said, it does it's not me. And he said, it will be. And I, and boy, when you look at it, like <laughs> I've seen that painting several times in the museum. Um, I, I don't know who this, who this piece is going to find, but I'm, I've been, it's been rewarding to see that those it has found had a kind of connection to it that felt similar to, to how I felt about it. And I'm not saying I feel that way in, in comparing it to other pieces or in a competitive way, um, just that some sometimes you get to have a sustained period of time where it's like you're singing in the shower in a way that you wouldn't sing even for your your partner. It's just too too naked and um, this this was one of those for me for better or worse where I I just I still would like another crack at changing a few little things in it like and I and I understand it's a weird approach to go through the entire film in a kind of annotated way. But um, some of the writers that most influenced me, um, you know, I'm thinking Charles D'Ambrosio, Michael Hare. And of course I love all of Susan Sontag and Janet Malcolm and Renata Adler. Um, Some of my favorite pieces from them are just the ones that are kind of the weirdest and the most idiosyncratic and the most personal and not just the most personal in a kind of oversharing, you know, feel sympathy for me kind of way, but where they're not sympathetic, where they're the jagged edges are there. And this, this was just one, one for me that was, um, you know, like I was saying about Van Gogh in the piece, it's interesting that the person who seems the most unfamiliar to him when he does a portrait is when he does a self portrait. And I, I feel kind of similar and I've, you know, there's a little bit in there about my parents and I've always, I've always felt really frustrated after I've ever written about them that it doesn't capture how I feel about them properly because it's reliant a bit on the context of, of what you're talking about. Does that make sense? Like, mm. You know, like like to, to, to mention that my dad battled alcoholism, okay, but it's not like that's not – that's different for every person who has a battle with alcohol and their reasons for doing it are different. And this was the first time where when he read it, uh, he said, you know, I never thought about my career in child protection law the way that you framed it or my reliance on alcohol being something that you were part of that ritual – but I mean, it's not that it's not a, it's not child abuse, but it has an impact. 
And similarly, you know, my mother being somebody that saw a number of people executed in Budapest during the Hungarian Revolution, um, how much did that impact her in wanting to give me not just a great childhood for me, but to make up for the childhood that she didn't have? And those are good intentions, but those good intentions create a certain kind of pressure. And it's hard not just to live your own childhood, but also recreate somebody else's and be this kind of Potemkin version of their fucked up childhood. And, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it impacted me in strange ways where a lot of my perspective was very gray. And, and I found in doing a lot of research on Anthony Bourdain, it's, it's fascinating to me, somebody that would get a tattoo on their arm saying, you know, certain of nothing that we go, oh, wow, it's so humble. What a wonderful perspective. And then this, doc- this documentary comes out and you have people in the film saying, don't let the suicide color who he was. There's so- the, the real him is not that. Bullshit. The, this was part of his trajectory all the way along. And it created a lot of wonderful light in the world too. But that darkness, that subterranean thing is, is very true as well. And, and you can try to separate it, but you're only trying to separate it to, to feel better about yourself and, and better about your illusions of how people actually function. And I wanted a, a crack at creating a nexus of sort of collage therapy for me in, in as personal a way as I could. And then you, you just don't know. Does, it, does any of that have overlap for anybody else? I hope it does. I hope it's of some utility. I hope trying to trying to be honest about some things that are embarrassing or I'm not a shameful person, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, darker, darker stuff or coming close to suicide a few times. Um, you know, even talking about it, there's a part of me that feels like it's, it's sort of vulgar or garish to do that. Um, and yet... I'm, I'm living in a country where suicide is triple the rate of, of homicide. And we talk about homicide, we don't just talk about homicide all the time. It's the lowest common denominator of shallow entertainment in this country. And yet suicide has such tremendous purchase on this country. And it's this ultra taboo subject and you can't bring it up without a suicide hotline number being down there. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but um, I... I also wanted to delve into it with so many of these characters that we are passionately connected to and try to make sense of how suicide has been a, a, you know, it's not an accident that almost every religion reserves the most vicious punishment possible for, for suicides. And I think it's just because it's so frightening to us to actually um, delve into our own pain and, and, um, you know, we like to think that there's some sort of magical solution or silver bullet where every day, um, you know, all of these negative feelings or, you know, and I say negative with quotes, um, we can just get rid of them, you know, and, and I'm, I'm very nervous about the idea that we'll have a pill very soon. And if you lose a parent, you can just instantly remove any sense of grief and, I'm kind of frightened of that. I mean, I think all feelings are valid and, and, you know, even psychiatry, it's, it's just like we've pathologized everything. So what is 
normal now is just so incredibly fucking narrow. And I don't know who's assigning this kind of stuff. I mean, being a homosexual was on the <laughs> the DSM for <laughs> until the 1970s. And why was it removed? Because enough people said, no, this is normal. Well, if they can remove it through petition, then, then how is this a science exactly? Like, I mean, at least may, it makes you check in with the validity of this kind of stuff. And, and suicide has been a thing that I, I've been really obsessed with in the culture and um, especially with artists. I mean, as I mentioned in the piece, Mike Tyson was the first one to say to me, um, why is it that all of your heroes have this in common? And it, it had never occurred to me before. Yeah, well, for for a piece that dives into so much of that and it comes right up against it and stares you know, suicide and death in the face, it's just to me, it's such a it, this thing was just so full of life and and joy, and maybe that's just because I've got a twisted mind and I just but I I just I sunk into this like I don't sink into many things, and it's just I was always just so um just so moved by the entire thing beginning to end, and just in awe of how seeing some of the threads like the you know the girl or who ends up being daisy in the, in the movie how she talks about the dust and then you bring in dust to francis bacon's final work of of the bull and it's just mostly empty space and they're sp- staring out at empty space so much in the passenger and it's just like i'm wondering how is it's just amazing these threads that you were able to organize and synthesize and intellectualize in this piece. And I was just like really in awe, just like looking at the work and then sinking into it. Well, and I, I think, you know, I think there's, there's something magical about people out of the gates with what they do with their work and they're not even thinking about what they're doing. It's some of the most fun time to catch artists in, in any mode of expression but occasionally a little bit of maturity and, and reflection and distance from things um, open up other pathways that can be quite interesting to look at also. And this was a period of time where I had a few months to really meditate on some stuff, some major themes in my own life. As I say, I, I, I didn't think of it this way, but it, looking now, it's totally collage therapy of this constellation of characters in art, their biographies, the the biography in relation to the work, um, seeking out the context and the time of that work, um, and then just trying to bring it home. I mean, if, if you're wanting to join the club of these people, um, even if you have no business thinking that you deserve to be there or anything, um, you you kind of have to look at your own story. I mean, very, very often um, I've kind of thought like, what have I done to deserve to, to spend half an hour or an hour with, with a hero that I had when I was a kid, you know, calling Jack Nicholson and, and probing him about this film. I was just thinking I'm nobody to him. We're going to talk for 30 minutes about it. It was an unbelievably strange conversation and and what a bizarre beginning. I mean, it was sort of uh, had this sort of Odysseus quality where it's like the first thing he said to me was after granting the interview, you know, I don't do interviews, right? (laughs) Like, like I don't do this. And I was like, well, 
then is this the interview or is this the preliminary discussion to do an interview? What is happening? And all the while, we had a bad connection. There was construction going on in the apartment <laughs> next to me in Spanish Harlem. And I just thought, this is more than likely the only time you're ever going to talk to this human being in your entire life. Um, this is never going to happen again. This is, he's going to be dead soon. Um, what can you get out of this? And some of those, some of those opportunities turn out so unexpectedly amazing. And then there are others which are just weird. So, I mean, I think, I think we all have juries in our mind with what we're doing with expressing anything. And, and we're constantly trying to appeal to this jury, <laughs> like it's worth it, or it's you know, it's good. Like, don't condemn us in some way. And and I don't know who's on your jury. And often I feel like my jury is for one or two people that I didn't think would ever be born. You know, being kids that I would have, just so that it it might be of some use to them on their journey. And I think I was, you know, it's really been only in the last year where I've even considered wanting to have a home, wanting to, to have a wife, wanting to have kids. And uh, as, as Nicholson said, you know, I quoted it in the piece, all of my work, I don't do interviews, I don't do TV, um, but all of my work is autobiography. And uh, I don't know, I can't say that all of my work has been autobiography, because I mean, some of it's just been to pay the rent or something, right? But a huge portion of it has, and it's it, it, like I was saying with the podcast, you get a few people, it becomes harder for the people you want to talk to to say no. They still can, but it just becomes that much easier when you have a bit of stuff behind you where people go, well, if those people said yes, I guess I, I at least should think about saying yes. And I you know, entering, entering this decade, I just kind of think, I, I don't know what's around the corner. I didn't expect to, to meet somebody that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with or have kids and stuff. And then it just makes you think about what you're writing in a very different way in that, uh, you know, a piece like this, which I think is the best thing I've ever done. If this opens absolutely no doors, then it's kind of like, well, would I rather just be writing this stuff for myself? Yeah, I would, I think. Then, you know, I, I wrote something the other day about a woman who recorded J.D. Salinger's voice and put it in a bank vault 40 years ago. And after we talked, she said, you know, you know what, Brian, I'm going to put it in. I'm going to put it in my will. I'm going to change my will and I'm going to put it in the crematorium and get rid of this goddamn fucking thing. <laughs> she, I love this woman, Betty Epps, like the most foul mouthed, wonderful lady in the world. But, you know, this thing gets picked up all over the place. I mean, every major curator, not everyone, but but tons of them picked up this story and. We talked for six hours, a wonderful conversation where it ended with us saying, I need to go down to Pearl, Mississippi. And she invited me to have dinner with her and stuff, this 81-year-old woman. But what does Bloomberg want? They want five minutes of that conversation. Hmm. And it's reduced from a 4,000-word article I hand in to 800 words where anybody could have written it. It doesn't have any semblance of who I am or my connection to Betty or the conversation we had. It's just a fucking headline. 
And it's a headline where people go, you know, good for Betty, good for Betty. You know, hmm. she's she stole his voice and she should destroy it. And other people saying, Betty, who the fuck are you to destroy it? This this sort of like Indiana Jones. It belongs in a museum kind of thing. But neither of these are particularly interesting to me. I'd rather go to Pearl, Mississippi and talk to Betty Epps for <laughs> an evening about why this was why this thing is, you know, so strange this this one day where she met with jd salinger that uh, everybody wants to know about and she won't share the story so i don't know I, I i guess it's i guess i've always liked the misfits and then and then you find out you become one you know you look back and you're like well i have a, a decade and, and change of a career that is just bizarre and doesn't fit into a lot of boxes and my passport for being here is not like most people that are doing it. Um, and, and there we are. And I, and I don't know what, what happens next, but um, I would love to be able to write some more things like this. I was hoping after having written it, I could expand it into a book and absolutely I'm clear. Nobody's going to pay me to do that. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> So, yeah, I got I got to ask you uh, one more thing about the uh, at one point you cite in the piece how David Locke says maybe the real subject of every interview is how you can't learn much about someone from an interview. And I was just like, oh, and that's the opening line of Domino Diaries. And I was just like, I, right. I loved seeing the parallel there between the things. And I just uh, I don't know. I, it just stuck out to me as a as a as a as a lover of your work. I'm like, oh, cool. There's an echo in the canyon. There's echoes all all over because uh, I I am sketching these things and trying to trying to find my way in in the dark a lot and so I, I do create little flares to try to, to try to illuminate my path of where where I'm headed because a, a lot of the stuff that I'm most interested in pursuing um, I I can have kind of a loose guide about how to get there. But I can't, I have to go on my own and I have to go on my own to sort of deep waters that I'm not comfortable swimming and, and I, I do get lost out there. And, you know, something like this to, it took a lot of time to shape this into a piece that, I mean, I hope is coherent. It has an order, it has a structure and I didn't fall into it. I, you know, it had to be rewritten a lot and it had to have its own logic. And sometimes you can see that with, you know, expressionistic paintings where at first you look at it and you're just like, oh, it's just chaos or whatever. But after a while, I mean, I, my best friend growing up, I remember saying to him, like the, the real artist for me is Van Gogh. Like there's no, there's no, erudition there he didn't develop that's just pure and he said you have no idea what you're talking about hmm. you have no fucking clue about how much van gogh developed and go read his fucking letters and look at what a bookworm he was what an incredible student he was all self-educated but that man was struggling so much to pull off the tricks that he was doing and the fact that you just think it's natural, I mean, there are a lot of people who read F. Scott Fitzgerald and say, what a, what a natural he is with the language. Bullshit. Right. 
you know, like it's not, to, I'm not saying that these guys aren't endowed with tremendous talent. You know, you, you don't read Joan Didion or, or Janet Malcolm um, or Sontag and, and, and come away thinking like they did, they didn't bring an enormous amount of talent, but they work their asses off to, to pull off what they do. And um, this was a piece I took a lot of time with so that, I would not feel shitty if an if I didn't find an editor like Jordan Ginsburg who just got it. Um, but every other editor I took it to, I'm not saying they didn't get it, but they didn't like it. You know, just they're just sort of like, why don't you turn it into 50 other things? Well, I did. I wanted to turn it into to what I would most want to read, and those are still the stories that I come back to. You know, reading Michael Hare's dispatches. Um, a lot of Charles D'Ambrosio's early stuff is so personal and strange and kind of infuriating. But but as a 20-year-old, I thought, like, this is what I want to do. I didn't know that you could do this and get it published. And I think they're both a lot more talented than I am, but, but I don't care. Like, I, I mean, uh, I remember, like, reading somewhere, like, Billy Joel was contacted by Ray Charles to sing a, a, a duet together. And he's like, how do I sing a duet with somebody that I've been imitating my entire life? <laughs> and, and I, I don't think I'm still imitating Michael Hare or, or Charles D'Ambrosio. I was when I was 20, but um, this was one that I think had all my influences, but I feel like I sang it in my own voice. For, for better or worse. Oh, certainly for, for better, man. Like, like I said, I can't sing the praises of this piece enough. And uh, so it's, as always, I, I could talk to you for six hours, but we should probably cut it off at, uh, at 72 minutes. Um, but yeah, Brent, as always, what, what a great pleasure to, to, to catch up. It's been too long. And, and thank you so much for the work you do. And uh, always such a pleasure to get to speak, to speak to you on this show. So thanks so much. Likewise, Brandon. Take care. Nice chat chatting. Well, thanks to Bryn for the time. Man, I could talk to that guy all day long. We'll listen to him all day long. And maybe maybe one day we'll meet and grab a few coffees and watch The Passenger or some other esoteric film. Wouldn't that be nice? I know I'd dig it. Yeah, to that point, I was writing in my journal the other day that... Uh, that the more people get to know me, the more I'm afraid they'll hate me. And it's uh, it, it's why I don't talk very much. You know, I ask a lot of questions. Go figure. People like being heard, like being listened to, like being seen. But if I, let's just say, let's just say I get to drinking. Uh, then I start getting chatty. And if I get chatty, then I get all kinds of anxious. And I wonder the next day if I said anything weird. And, well, I guess they don't like me anymore. Is that is that a thing? Does that really happen? Is that like the crux of social anxiety? I don't know. Thanks to West Virginia Wesleyan's Creative Writing MFA program for the support, as well as Hippocamp 2021 for the support. Yeah, that's going to do it. I'm cutting this short. All right? Stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do interview, see ya. See ya.